Hello, and you are listening to Squash Radio. This is a brand new podcast that wants to bring the inside of squash to life by serving up the best stories. This whole station was a little experiment in itself. We are pushing this even further by testing new ways of getting you these stories. We now have short five to 10 minute video recaps available online. We are trying shorter interviews, capturing people in their moment. And coming up, we are teaming up with some people to do some on-site coverage of events since we can't be everywhere. But here's where we need some help. We are still very small, but have big dreams. Can you help us get the word out, spread the news? Small things could help, like do you have a website and want to embed Squash Radio? We can share simple code and boom, Squash Radio can be right there with new episodes automatically downloaded. Or support us on social media. Any of these things would be extremely appreciated. Want to get in touch with us? Well, there are lots of ways. Any of the social media messaging apps or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey there, Squash fans, and welcome to Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley. Today, we have a great interview with someone calling in from England. He's had a professional career in sports journalism, but if you knew him from Squash World, you'd think that that's his primary focus since he's accomplished so much in this field. We are talking about Alan Thatcher, who beyond working full-time for a national English newspaper, has spent over 30 years of his life towards growing the sport of squash, including launching and running the website squashmad.com, which is a great source for squash news articles and activities on how to grow the sport. In our conversation, we cover a wide range of topics, kicking off with the book he recently co-authored and released, Jahangir Khan, 555, the untold story behind Squash's invincible champion and sport's greatest unbeaten run. We talk about the highly successful professional squash event, the Canary Wharf in London, which he is part of the management team. We also talk about the grassroots level of the game, and you hear about racquetball, only it's a different kind of racquetball from the United States. I always enjoy doing the quickfire questions with our guests, and this is no exception. Some of his answers I've already tried and am loving them. Last, I have a quick disclaimer that I want to share with you. There was a topic that came up in our conversation about Interactive Squash or iSquash, and it's actually one of the companies I do some consulting for. I brought the company up because I felt it was relevant to the topic, but to be honest, it caught me a little off guard at the time in terms of how to approach it with you, the audience. In general, I've been treating Squash Radio as a separate project, and I toggle hats. And in general, I prefer to keep them separate, but maybe it won't be possible. Maybe it will. But anyway, I felt compelled to share this disclaimer because my guiding principle is the trust I have with you, the audience. Well, on that note, I'll turn it over to our conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. Hey there, Squash fans. We have a great guest for you today. I'm very excited to have someone who actually is uh, calling in from London, and uh, this is the one and only Alan Thatcher. Welcome, Alan. Connor, good evening. Well, you've been around the game for for so long and such a a driver of the sport, growing it at all levels, the professional level, all the way down to the grassroots. And, you know, for some people here on the background, uh, or to give them a little bit of background about yourself, would you mind just taking a minute or two and explaining how... If you're at a, a dinner party or a cocktail party, how and someone says, what do you do? How do you answer that? Well, there's two answers to that. My first job is as a sports journalist with a national newspaper. All my squash work I do in my spare time, always have done. Uh, so over the last 30 years, I've built up this uh, amazing involvement in the game. Like you say, I, I love working with the top pros, but equally, I love working at the grassroots getting new people on board. And when you see newcomers to the game fall in love with the sport like I did 30, 40 years ago, you realize, you know, you hopefully you're doing something right. Well, and one of the big things I want to go on in your world right now is you just released a book, uh, 555, Tonga Khan, The Untold Story. Tell us a little bit about how you came about wanting to write this book and why do you feel like you wanted to tell this story? Well, the idea came from my co-author, Rod Gilmore. Um, November, it was the 30th anniversary of Jahangir losing that unbeaten run to Ross Norman in Toulouse. And uh, we spent all of last year researching, talking to people who were around 35, 40 years ago 
on the squash scene. We spoke to Jeff Hunt. We spoke to Ross Norman in great detail and many other people who shared their experiences. Um, for me, it was a lovely trip down memory lane because I was around then. I was fairly new to the squash scene then and seeing Jahangir close up, seeing him break down Jeff Hunt and then take over the world of squash was just an amazing experience. And for me, one of the incredible things, I found out lots of old notes, um, fading newspaper reports. Before the advent of commute, uh, computers, we used to use typewriters with carbon paper, and I had mm -hmm. carbon copies of some old reports. There were some famous matches down at Chichester where he first beat Jeff Hunt in the, the final of the Chichester tournament. And then two weeks later, Hunt uh, turned the tables. He beat Jahangir in the British Open final at Bromley on stage at the Churchill Theatre. That was Jeff Hunt's eighth and final British Open win. And a couple of years later, Gamalawad challenged Jahangir. Jonah Barrington was in Gamalawad's corner. Their plan was to keep Jahangir on court for more than two hours to see what would happen. And again, I had notes from every point, every rally from that particular oh, wow. match. And yeah. and at the end of the match, I actually got both players to sign the score sheet. So I still <laughs> have that signed score sheet. So one day, I, whether I auction it for my pension or for charity, I'm not sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll see, right? Um, so in terms of like going about writing the book, uh, I mean, it sounds like it, that that unto itself was a story. What was kind of your favorite memories in, in the writing process of, of bringing that book around? Well, again, going up in the loft and unearthing all those old notes, you know, those things had survived three house moves. So I'm quite proud of the fact that I managed to hold on to that stuff for 35 years. Um, despite enormous pressure to clear all this junk out every time we moved house. So I knew they'd come in handy one day. And then researching the book, I had all this stuff, this amazing material at my fingertips. And basically every little piece of information, either new or stuff that you remembered or you interviewed people, it just showed what a phenomenal player Jahangir was. You know, to go unbeaten in softball for five and a half years was just a phenomenal record. And to win the British right. Open 10 years in a row. For us in, in, in the UK, you imagine Andy Murray winning Wimbledon 10 years in a row. Now, that would right, be right. mind-blowing, but that is what Jahangir has achieved in squash. Well, just to give a little bit of context in terms of, uh, I mean, I completely agree, just to give some context in terms of other sports and other streaks. Did you guys uh, explore that much? We certainly did, yes. And there were very few people that came anywhere close to Jahangir. Who were some of the ones that uh, came close? Well, the, the funny thing was there was a, a wheelchair tennis player in Holland who, whose name escapes me for the moment, but it is in the book. Um, obviously, you, you had some of the true greats like Muhammad Ali and Tiger Woods in their own respective spheres, but they didn't have a long unbeaten run to match Jahangir. And so we're, we are talking about one of the great sporting icons in history. The interesting uh, thing is, as a coach, I'm sure you've experienced this, you talk to young people who are new to the game, um, they don't know who Peter Nickel and Jonathan Power were. We obviously knew them 10 years ago at their peak, and we're talking now about somebody who was at the peak of his game before these people were born. So most yeah. of the top pros now were born after Jahangir's time. And obviously that 30-year anniversary in November, it was a, that was the launch date of the book. And we thought that was a, a very appropriate time. And I have to thank Ross Norman uh, for spending so much time and opening up his own collection of memories and his own files just reliving that period. Ross has a photographic memory of everything he's ever done oh on gosh. a squash court. So that was wow. very useful. And they were just and, amazing uh, days. Go on. I was going to ask, oftentimes uh, the audience sees the, the finished product of, uh, and, and gets a chance to read that. Was there anything that you guys were wrestling with of, um, um, you know, what should, something that you, you wanted to put in there and then it just didn't, it got cut on the editing floor? 
There were one or two personal things, relationships. Obviously, the man who's responsible for, for all this is Ramat Khan, Jahangir's coach, cousin, and mentor. And towards the end of their career, there was a breakdown in relationship. When Jahangir won that final British Open, Ramat wasn't in his corner. And again, I remember going down the steps at Wembley Conference Center 30 years ago and looking for Ramat, and I found him standing on his own downstairs under in the basement of the arena. And there was a, there was a sadness in that breakup. Um, we didn't go into that for personal reasons. I, I didn't think we needed to. The book was about the record. You know, it wasn't about Jahangir's entire career. It was about that that amazing record. It was about the kind of training, the phenomenal training that he did at the age of 15, 16, 17. You imagine a 17-year-old now becoming world champion. That's what he achieved. You know, Jeff Hunt was regarded as the fittest guy on the planet. And I saw Jahangir break him at Chichester. Hunt was buckled. He bent double. His knees were gone. He, he flailed at a serve and hit the ball into the floor while Jahangir was serving on match ball down at Chichester. And those, I remember that clear as anything. I just thought, this guy is amazing. And then later that year, he became world champion for the first time and set off on this amazing unbeaten run. He, his physical fitness levels were absolutely phenomenal. A lot of players tried to match him and their bodies broke down. They couldn't keep up with Jahangir's training methods. They, they tried to work out some weaknesses on the court. Uh, they all thought if you worked him into the front right corner, you might find something weak. You, you know, you do that with most adult males anyway. The caveman instinct takes over and they'll probably smack it cross court. But Jahangir's cross court was better, faster and tighter and deeper than anyone else's in history. So even though you knew where the ball was going, you know, and he's blasting that ball at you at phenomenal speed, um, people just couldn't cope with that incessant pressure. One disappointment, when Andy Roddick recorded 150 miles an hour in tennis, that's when I went out and bought a radar gun to test the top <laughs> squash guys because I've always known we, our ball speed is much faster than tennis, but nobody was doing it. And I just thought that was a massive disservice to the game. Why isn't this stuff being done? So I went out and bought my own radar gun. And yeah. that's when John White set the record, 172 miles an hour phenomenally 171 on his crazy backhand. And then yeah. Cam Pilly comes along 178 miles an hour. But the one thing Ross Norman said to me was, whenever you turned up at a, at a tournament and you heard the guys knocking up on the glass court, you always knew when Jahangir was on court because the noise he made smacking that ball against the glass was louder than anybody else on the tour. Oh, wow. Nice intimidation factor, right? Absolutely. So I would love to have had Jahangir at his peak on the radar gun. That would have been amazing. I was just going to say Hidi Jahan as well with, a, with an old wooden racket. He could smack that ball around and still does at the age of 60-something. Um, so Hidi, Hidi was a big hitter, and then along came Jahangir. And the, the amazing thing about that whole story was the transition that squash was going through. We went from plaster courts to perspex courts into all glass courts. The players had to cope with different balls that popped up all the time to try and improve the TV presentation. And obviously the rackets changed from wooden rackets to the big graphite frames. So there were all these changes going on. And Jahangir and all the other guys just took all these changes in their stride because they knew they were part of something that was growing the sport. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jahangir really helped to not only revolutionize, but almost modernize the, the sport. Um, who, who else um, in your mind has stuck out in terms of uh, the top pros to help propel the sport forward? Well, Ross Norman actually said at the book launch at Wimbledon back in November, he said, you look at people like Roger Federer, and they probably add 5% to what's happened in tennis. But he said, Jahangir, he moved squash forward at least 20% with the things he did, the way mm. he played the game, 
the kind of person he was, the persona he had, the publicity he generated for the sport, the headlines he created, the sponsors he attracted to the sport, the sellout crowds he attracted to the sport. He was our first squash superstar. Well, um, just shifting gears, you know, from a little bit of history to, to modern day at the pro level, and you're quite a busy fellow over there with, uh, with all of your activities. You, you want to talk a little bit about uh, the Canary Wharf and your involvement there? And I mean, some great stories coming well, out uh, this year. Oh, well, Canary Wharf, I'm part of the team. The management team is Tim Garner, Peter Nickel, Angus Kirkland, and myself. The four of us have been running the tournament now for 14 years, and we're delighted to see it cemented now into the calendar as one of the main events in the UK, indeed on the world tour. The players all enjoy playing in front of sellout crowds every day. I believe that Canary Wharf and the Tournament of Champions are the only two tournaments in the world that sell out every ticket every day. John Nimick does an amazing job at the TOC. We're nowhere near that status in terms of prize money, but in terms of impact in London, it's wonderful for the sport to actually be able to demonstrate that there clearly is a market for top-class professional sport, top-class professional squash in London. And, uh, you know, one, one of the things that struck out to me, I mean, you always see amazing um, rallies and great matches and upsets, but, you know, I think um, the one thing that Nick Matthew did this year, not only getting his sixth, his sixth title, but then donating his prize money. You know, I, I think those are kind of things that um, elevate the sport and just really reach a broader audience, which I think both you and I and the squash community are all looking for. So totally. I, that, was, that was an amazing gesture by Nick. He donated his entire prize money to a young man called Sumner Malik, who's 11 years old. He's one of six children. All six play squash. There are five boys and one girl. They're all county players in Sussex. A couple of them are England juniors. And young Sumner has a brain tumor that the specialists have said is inoperable. But like any parent, Sumner's mum and dad are looking at every single way they can to help him um, with diet. With He's just started some treatment in London, there is a possibility that this could be extended into further treatment in Germany, um, but this the treatment is not available on the National Health Service. So the treatment is only available privately and the fees involved are absolutely staggering. So the fundraising activities undertaken by the entire squash community on a global basis are truly amazing and heartwarming and seeing a great world champion like Nick Matthew lead this process um, just makes you realize that we're all part of one big global squash family. Yeah, absolutely. It's so commendable. And, you know, I think the other big part, and um, you and I both know Nick uh, pretty well, and, you know, there was that clip in the interview where he says he wouldn't have done it, you know, and rather just give it away and uh, support the cause but he was encouraged to make this public. And I really, I can, I'm sure he wrestled with it, but then also realized, he's like, yes, I, I do have the platform. I do, there is an audience and I want to get the message out there. So, you know, hats off to Nick on that. And Totally. Well, on day one, uh, young Sumner and the whole family were our guests at Canary Wharf. So it was a real pleasure to welcome the family to Canary Wharf and oh see well, Nick. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Did he have a blast? Funnily enough, it was a late night. We had a few long matches, as you know. And uh, as I was interviewing Nick on court, the family were just about to leave, but they hung on. Um, they actually filmed through the side of the court. Sumner's dad uh, filmed uh, Nick saying some wonderful words on the glass court. And wow. with Nick as, as a cheerleader, I know that so many that's encouraged so many other people to step forward and offer their own donations and support. Well, um, just shifting gears now, you and I always have a, a great time talking that we go everything from you know the top of the game and pushing the, the sport forward. But then uh, that I think that happens both at the professional level, but then really on a day-to-day basis at the at the grassroots. And you know, you're someone who who really does ride that full spectrum. And you know, talk a little bit about your efforts that, and where you want to see the sport start changing towards. Well, there was a great sadness in uh, writing the Jahangir Khan book because during that era, 30 years ago, we had close to 3 million squash players here in the UK. 
Now it's the regular numbers around 300,000. So the drop in participation figures has been hugely damaging to the sport in the UK. So every local squash club faces the same challenge when attracting young people who largely live their lives through electronic devices. So encouraging those kids to put down their their Playstations or their iPhones or whatever whatever they're playing with and actually get them doing some physical exercise is a challenge. Getting them to come inside a building uh, like a squash club is another challenge. You know, you can walk down in any park and see kids kicking a ball around and you understand they're playing football. Squash is something, it's a very private sport. This is one of the drawbacks we have is that all our sport takes place inside little boxes, inside largely private clubs. Mm. And so opening up the sport to encourage people to come in requires a massive amount of commitment at the grassroots level, especially forging links with schools so that you get young people year after year. That commitment has to be an annual thing because if you don't go back year after year, you'll find gaps in your program. You, yeah. know, you, might, ha- you might miss out on an intake of under 11s this year and two years down the line, you suddenly find we don't have any players for the under 13s. And then further down the line, you realize you'll have a gap in the under 15s and the 17s. So that commitment has to be a total all-consuming process year after year. And this is the most important challenge the game faces in that constant recruitment program from the schools. Make it fun. Keep the kids involved. Don't overburden young people with too much pressure. The biggest problem we have with smaller numbers is that our children spend more time on the motorway driving to tournaments than they do actually spend on court having fun playing other kids. And I think that is hugely damaging. We get lots of 15, 16 year olds giving up the game because they're simply burned out by all the travel, the stress and the pressure. I want kids to be happy and healthy, um, treat squash like a fun game, but obviously the good ones will rise to the top and you've got to look after them better than we are doing. I think there's far too much pressure placed on young people. Well, it's interesting to hear, you know, a lot of what you're saying is also very true here in the United States and, you know, access and probably starts first with awareness of the sport here in the U S uh, there about 10 years ago is 1% awareness. And now it's um, up to two, if not 3% awareness in the United States compared to in England, 80% awareness of the sport. Right. So uh, that probably goes back to uh, what you're saying earlier of having that, that huge level of participation numbers. Right. Um, but so we're, we're, we're also really faced with the access and awareness problem and, you know, I, I, I think another key component to that is, um, and especially now being in the 21st century, is how can you leverage technology to really bridge that gap? And I, I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with interactive squash, the iSquash. Yes, I've um, seen it. Love it. Great idea. It, uh, you know, I, when you were mentioning bringing kids on board and all that, it's, I actually got a chance to test it when I was visiting uh, Munich a few months mm-hmm. ago. And it's basically a giant arcade game for kids. Um, yes. Now, <laughs> and I say kids because it could also be, you know, young kids, but then there's also big kids like, you know, my, uh, myself yes. and yourself. Uh, and it yep. really is just tremendously engaging. So uh, if you haven't had a chance, you got to figure out how to do it. But it's I, I know that they're setting something up inside Munich Airport in a few weeks time. If I get the chance to pop over, I will because I want to explore this. I'm slightly concerned about the cost. I've heard that this thing is very, very expensive, the full package. Um, So whether there might be some knockoff alternative that's much cheaper, um, normally competition like that drives the price down. But in squash, we tend to leave the market open for things like this. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. And is it, my, my simple question is, is it affordable for a small local club in England that maybe doesn't have the budget for, for something that I hear costs around $40,000? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. Um, and I think if you look at the technology trends in general, like take a step back and whether it's a flat screen, plasma screens that come out, um, you know, there's a lot of research development costs that go in there. And then as as it's able to like 
reach a broader market, uh, costs can come down and it makes it potentially more affordable. So it's a good question. I think, um, you know, what I'm impressed with is these kind of initiatives and investments. I mean, we have a company, Interactive Squash, that's making investment in the sport. It's how can we embrace that? And so, you know, I think there are clubs and facilities that, um, sure, that's a lot. uh, I'm not going to lie. That's a tremendous amount of money to spend. But, you know, if you recognize that that is making investment in the sport and propelling it, there, there are ways to justify it. Mm. You know, here's a, here's a quick example and, and kind of, I'm sure you can relate to as a coach. Um, you know, when I was coaching, uh, uh, four to six year olds or seven to 10 year olds, there'd be some drop off. Kids would come by and just mm. not really be that into it. So if you imagine, I would say between three out of 10 to five out of 10 comfortably would come back for more lessons. Well, if you can push that up two or three kids and suddenly seven out of 10, eight out of 10, and you yes. continue to give lessons to that, that's really, it's a marketing play. So mm-hmm. now I think part of this is, is shifting the conversation towards um, how can it make sense and um, how is this good for the sport? And you know, th- th- those are just some of the things I, I kind of approach that scenario with. Well, I, I love the glass courts. I love glass, I love anything that makes the game visually exciting. Mm-hmm. Into whether that's the color of player's shirt, the color used to build a glass court, all the colors that you dress the court with, the arena lighting, all those things can make a squash tournament look very cool, very exciting, very dramatic. And just, I took a friend up last year to Canary Wharf for the first time. This guy is a builder. He's keen to build a new squash club. And this is the first time he'd ever seen a glass court. And this guy is a professional engineer. And he was just blown away by the engineering involved and the colors and how it came across on TV. So with, the game is doing some great things. And I love the PSA court, the Z court that they use for the World Series finals in Dubai. All those things are just so visually exciting. And they help us. All those who are involved in trying to promote the game, sell the game, all these things help enormously. Well, in talking a little bit more about, I think those are really help with the awareness aspect, Mm -hmm. but then going down to playability, so to speak, in terms of, you know, I think golf from a certain respect does an interesting aspect of uh, really making the sport playable for all different levels. And I think that's something we, I say we, um, the sport at a a kind of a top level hasn't quite broached as well. And I, mm-hmm. I emphasize because I think there's a lot of this is a resource issue and awareness, but what I'm talking about is the playability and having like, whether it's scoring system, ball types, or, or, um, you know, even with the racquetball uh, and over in the UK, it's, it's played on a, on a regular squash court, but with the squash rules, yeah. just a different ball. You're very close to this subject and we just love to get your thoughts on this. Talk there, a little bit about there it. There are three Two or three things stick out. One is racquetball. Um, the biggest growth in making squash fun over here in the last couple of years or so has been the enormous growth in one-day graded tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um, they're taking place at clubs all over the country, A, B, C, D. You get some very good players in the A. You get they're like county players. You get very good club players in the B. Uh, you get the second and third team guys in the C. And then the D is for the fun social players. So, And they all come together in the same club on the same day. It's great fun, lots of social stuff in the evening. We had one that was sponsored by a local sports bar called Lashings, which has an international cricket team, very famous, world-famous sports bar with an amazing international cricket team. They supported our one-day graded, and most of our guys ended up spending all night in Lashings afterwards. So you're fulfilling the obligation to provide competitive squash at every level and doing some great stuff on the social side as well. Two more things. One is racquetball. Um, I've grown to love racquetball. I've been playing it seriously now for the last two or three years. I'm getting older and fatter and slower. It hurts my body to play squash at the level I used to play. Racquetball is so much fun. But because the rallies are longer, you end up getting a fantastic workout. I've been talking to a lot of well-connected people in the States who run the World Racquetball Tour about trying to get some 
synergy between the racquetball pros and the squash pros. Obviously, the big mm-hmm. difference is the racquetball court in the USA does not have a tin. They're looking for that flat nick where the front wall joins the floor. They call that a rollout. And that's their big winner. With us, it's the slam cross-court nick that rolls out across the floor. For them, that nick is right in the middle of the front wall or anywhere on the front wall. So I love playing squash, sorry, playing racquetball on a squash court. You don't have the rollout, but you can still hit cross-court nicks. You can still build a rally as we do in squash, albeit slightly slower. But the technique is still the same. And because of that, lots and lots of squash players are turning to racquetball and a lot of them are playing both codes. And so I see this as a major growth for the sport. But which that leads me on to the type of balls we play with. And Nick Taylor has followed Richard Millman in writing an article for Squash Mad, um, claiming that basically 90% of all squash players are using the wrong ball. They should not all be using the double yellow dot. They should be playing with a single dot, and most of the youngsters should be playing with something even bouncier, because there's nothing worse than seeing two beginners trying to warm up a double yellow dot ball on a cold court and missing every time and having one, two shot rallies. That is not squash. Squash has to be fun, and we should be helping as many people as possible to have as much fun as possible and advising them on, on the correct ball to use. You know, I think it's a great disservice to the game that we allow anyone to jump on a court and we don't give them the right ball to play with. I completely agree. The, the one other thing I would throw in there is also uh, a scoring system. Cause, mm-hmm. uh, and ultimately, I think what you're touching on is how do we make, you and I both love the sport, but mm-hmm. when you're bringing new people on, how can they enjoy it at their level? And yeah. I think that that it's really it's interesting, you know, you're talking about with the ch- people using the championship ball, and I think a lot of new players to the game, there's a sense of, well, I don't want to uh, not play what everyone else plays with. So there's kind of a culture shift that needs to go on. But Yeah, it's, I, it's the same in golf. They look at what the kind of clubs that the top pros are using, and they all buy very expensive clubs, hoping that they'll it'll help them to play like the pros. And there's right, some right. of that with everybody wanting to use the double yellow dot ball. One thing yeah. that I found with coaching beginners, when they play their first 10, 12 shot rally, they are absolutely elated, whether they won that rally or not. When they first start getting involved in long rallies and they feel the kind of love and joy that you and I understand and have known for years, you lose that. If you then put two beginners on, you and I can feed it. We can, we can engineer those long rallies. We can move people around and we can help them to understand that this is about building your fitness, playing long rallies. You, you allow two beginners to go on court together with a double yellow, that will not happen. Absolutely not. So yeah. we, we should be, every club owner, every club coach should be helping people to play with a ball that is appropriate to their skill level and fitness level. Yeah. The, how, um, how about that? Would U.S. squash jump on board with that? Absolutely. You know, I, so I no longer work there, but when I was there, that was very mindful or top of mind in terms of what, um, for the sport we saw we need to attack, uh, that needs to be tackled. The challenging part, you know, I go back to is the resource issue where there's, there's a lot of other things popping up and it's tough to prioritize those. So. It really, I see this as a multi-front approach where it's like you need the PSA helping to endorse it. You need national government bodies getting by in there. You need the, the you know, the ball manufacturers. The Dunlop was so supportive of helping develop the right yeah. balls for them. So it's helping to promote that. So, and I think, you know, part of it is also going out there where these balls can be purchased. So talking to your local pro shop of, um, hey, let me try yeah. these different balls. So, you know, I yeah. completely agree there. And, you know, one of the things actually I do, uh, for both when I'm warming up or, uh, you know, as, as I'm getting older is, and also for fun is I play double bounce and where it kind mm-hmm. of use, using a championship ball and it just, it really helps you move around. It increases the, the length of the rally and it, it allows, it reduces the physical constraint of being able to retrieve balls where you, you really start playing almost like the pros where it's the strategy comes into it. So, uh, I completely yeah. agree where long rallies make it fun, tiring, but, but fun. Um, mm. Well, I was coaching at nine o'clock this morning and it was, it, it's a lovely sunny day in London, but it was quite cool this morning. I was coaching a new guy and we played with a single dot ball 
and he didn't notice. It was great. It was perfect. We didn't need yeah. to use a double yellow. There's no point asking someone to rip their shoulder out, warming up a double yellow on a cold court um, on a cool morning. You know, the, the single dot fulfills every obligation. It does that for you. And it works perfect. It's a great ball for coaching. Oh, absolutely. I, I would use single dot when I was coaching a lot, just because especially when you pause to give feedback, the ball with a double dot goes cold very fast. So that, that would You be do a drop shot routine or soft volley drops, the ball goes cold really quickly. Then you've got to warm it up again. Well, in terms of other uh, grassroots efforts, I know you've been very closely involved with the World Squash Day and because you were really one of the big drivers behind bringing that around and getting so much awareness for the sport. Talk a little bit about that. Well, World Squash Day was launched after 9-11. There were a large number of squash players who were killed in the attack on the Twin Towers in New York, including a, a British guy called Derek Sword, who was a Scottish junior international alongside Peter Nicholl and Martin Heath. And lots of friends got together to do something special to honor Derek's memory but also do something tangible for the sport. And that's how World Squash Day was launched. It was launched by uh, a, another very good squ Scottish squash player called Laurie McLaughlin. He and I launched World Squash Day and year one, a team from New York came over to play at Lambs Club in London. And it was a very emotional day. We had, if you remember, the US Open was on at the same time as 9-11 and players found that their flights were canceled or they were diverted to different parts of North America. And so the US Open was postponed until the January and Peter Nickel won the final and flew back through the night on the red eye with John White. They both got off the plane at Heathrow the next morning, got a taxi into London and they played in this amazing one day event at Lambs Club. We had a 15 aside London v New York match with club players, and then we had an eight man pro invitation with Peter Nichol, Paul Price, John White, and a host of other pros. It was an amazing, amazing day. And since then, we've tried to do something special every year to promote the sport and support things like the Olympic bid. And four years ago, we organized the biggest sports match in history with more than 40,000 players all over the world taking part in a match between Team Squash and Team 2020. It was just, it was phenomenal. The response all over the world was absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, that wave of support gave you confidence that hopefully someone at the IOC would see this and would take note. There's this global love of the game. There's this huge groundswell of support. Not only are the top pros model athletes producing a high level of compelling, aggressive, attacking, entertaining sport, but at club level, you've got this vibrant sport doing so well. Despite dropping participation numbers in the UK, obviously, you've got a massive growth in America. You are now the number one nation in terms of participation. Uh, there are great things going on around the world. You look at Egypt, you look at Malaysia, you look at so many different countries where squash is growing. And uh, the message is universal. You know, squash is not just about the UK anymore. It used to be a UK-based game that we exported to the rest of the world, but now the rest of the world is often showing us how to play it, how it should be in all sports. Well, I think you touched on the Olympics a little bit, and I think what we're all trying to, to ultimately get that recognition and get that participation in the Olympics. But having lost a few bids, uh, the line I was very comfortable using while getting into the Olympics would be a game changer. It's not a deal breaker. And I mean, look at golf, for example, that uh, 2016 was the first time it was back in the Olympics. And if you look at the robustness of that as a sport, that's pretty impressive. So, you know, I think we still have some ways to go and uh, it'll be a pretty sweet day when we do get in the Olympics. I do have belief that we will and uh, shooting for 2024 now. Well, one thing that is very clear are the funding issues. Obviously, as a non-Olympic sport, we look on and we see rowing and athletics getting 
awards of 30 million from Sport England to fund their Olympic campaigns. Um, phenomenal amounts of money are going into the Olympic sport and squash is missing out. And because of those falling participation figures, the funding for England squash from Sport England has fallen from 3 million to 1.6 million. So some of our top players are about to feel the pinch. Some of their funding will be cut in June. Some key officers at England Squash have been released in a cost-cutting program. And so all these effects are having a negative effect on the game, but obviously a place in the Olympics will help to raise the profile of the sport and help to increase the funding that comes into the elite athletes. Yeah, the cash investment to help the athletes achieve their uh, Olympic dreams, it would be phenomenal for the sport and, and it's needed. You know, Canada was going through a very similar thing where their funding was reduced uh, because the criteria stated that they had to maintain performance at the top eight in the world. And when Jonathan Power stopped competing, they fell out of that. And um, Squash Canada is feeling that too. And ironically, U.S. Squash is the I think the only governing body or federation worldwide that receives zero dollars from any uh, government supporting. So it's really self-made or uh, uh, earned or uh, raised through fundraising. I would like to to take this opportunity to congratulate U.S. Squash for the way they set about raising the fund to promote events like the U.S. Open and set up a management structure where you very professionally manage all aspects of the game. I think you have a governing body that is a lesson for every nation on the planet. So a big well done to you, Kevin Clipstein, and all the other officers at U.S. Squash who've done such a great job over on your side of the pond. So big well done to you guys. Well, thanks, Alan. Um, you know, part of that is, and we felt kind of a burden, not burden, but um, responsibility. And also just uh, everyone that was working at U.S. Squash is also the majority of them are squash players themselves. So, you know, we want to share those successes and really demystify. Like we have to go figure it out and ensure that methodology might not apply everywhere. Mm-hmm. But let's say 80% of it does. And that's what we need to, uh, we can share that. And I, going back to technology, you know, I think one of the big things that uh, U.S. Squash developed was Club Locker, which can do everything from court booking reservations. So your club, you know, top mm-hmm. of the line, you can use it from your smartphone all the way to event management, which I'm sure <laughs> you would appreciate. Uh, all this can be scored and entered online. So the, the taking out the, the labor and the burden of having to update draws manually, that's gone. It's all done via by the court. You score in real time and the draws get updated. Yep. That, that's something uh, we, we can definitely share. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the things I love about the Squash Mad website. We have a section called Growing the Game. So the, mm-hmm. this is an invitation to anybody who's listening. If anybody has any great ideas about growing the game or, or something that they've launched that has proved a success, please let me know. I will publish it on Squash Mad. We can share it. And we use this platform to share all these great ideas. And that one of the things I'm proud of with Squash Mad is that we, we are very keen to share great ideas to help to grow the game. Yeah, and huge hats off to you on uh, the squashmad.com. I mean, it really is. I use it as a source to go find out all aspects of the game, and it's great to have that variety. So, you know, in terms of how much time do you spend on that? I know, I mean, similar to me, like a lot of this stuff is done on the side, but how often mm. are you um, able to? Well, two hours every morning. I've just, before speaking to you just now, I've just uploaded the report from the British Open. Nick Matthew, we have three English players in the finals of the British Open tomorrow, and that is an amazing achievement. Nick Matthew, Laura Massaro, Sarah Jane Perry in the finals tomorrow. Nick at 36 years old, playing Gregory Gaultier at 34. You know, that rivalry goes back two decades, and here they are both playing fantastic squash in their mid thirties and Laura doing the same slightly younger and Sarah, you know, she's been a terrific professional worked so hard and, you know, beating Nicole David is a a terrific result in a pressure situation. So I'm really looking forward to seeing those two finals tomorrow. Yeah, it's really exciting. And, you know, I think anytime you can have these stories where it's on your home turf and getting those athletes through the finals, I mean, it really just is a great story. Well, there's a huge concern for us because 
our top players are contracted to towards next year's Commonwealth Games, which takes place in Australia, in Gold Coast in April next year. Nick Matthew will be 37. James Wilstrop will be 35. Laura Massaro will be 34. Um, I spoke to Nick a few days ago, did a big interview, which we'll publish soon about his plans for the future. He's got a very interesting career mapped out with lots of coaching academies and coaching opportunities. Um, But if and when those players disappear off the scene, certainly in the men's rankings, you've got Nick, James Wilstrop, Daryl Selby, all in their mid-30s. We've got seven Egyptians in the world top 10 at the moment. You've got Gregory Gaultier in there flying the flag for France. You could have, as as Kareem Darwish said to me a few years ago, we could have 11 Egyptians in the world top 10. (laughs) It's an amazing achievement for Egypt, but I'm not sure how good it is for the rest of the world. Well, I mean, going back to to your book, right, with Jahangir Khan, right, you can can look at it. There's an error and these things shift. And I hope that that brings about um, the way I look at it as a competitor is, okay, Mm. that's motivation. And I want to grab that top 10. So I think you're right in terms of, uh, and that's a significant achievement, especially for for Egypt that has, Mm. for any country, for any player to get in the top 10, let alone country to be filled almost with it, is remarkable. Well, the other other thing, going back to Jahangir Khan and the Pakistani era of dominance, you had three decades of Pakistan uh, dominating the world scene. And now we've hardly got a single Pakistani in the top 30. Right. There's a great sadness for the sport because Pakistan, especially when you had Jahangir and Janshir at their peak, their respective peaks at the same time, that was an unbeatable combination. They had some pretty talented other guys around them. But now the whole scene in Pakistan is riddled with corruption. Every national federation and the World Federation knows that every junior tournament, Pakistan will fly over a group of young males who may be two years old than their designated age group. And that is that is cheating, that is lying, that is corruption, and it's tarnishing the sport. I've done some research and found out that these kids are not allowed to do this at home in Pakistan. They all play in the correct age groups, but when they play overseas, they these same people, the, it's not the kids you blame, it's the federation. They deliberately put these kids in age groups, knowing that their juniors are over that age limit. And that, to me, is shocking. Well, I, I was going to say, um, I keep going about all these different aspects. Uh, it's so fascinating. And I want to hopefully try and connect more often with you. And I think it'd be interesting uh, information sharing about what's going on in Love the UK and in the United States. But um, I wanted to shift gears to a little, little portion I have. It's where it's a quick fire section. And I'm, I'm asking right. all the guests same kind of questions. And it's interesting to hear the variety of answers that are coming out. So I was going to shift gears there and uh, put you in the hot seat. Um, So I'll be curious to hear what your answer is on this question, especially in the UK. And I know the the variety of different transportation modes, but what's your favorite mode of transportation? I love driving, uh, listening to my music in my car. uh, What's the radio tuned to when you're for your music? You know, I love classic FM. I've either got um, 70s rock or classic FM. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Depending on your mood, you just switch back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Great. Um, What gets you fired up? And this can, uh, it sounds like the Pakistani uh, issue could be there, but, you know, it can be something within squash world or something completely outside of it. Your choice. But uh, what gets you fired up? uh, I. Well, let's, let's talk about positive things. What what fires me up in life is yeah. people who, you know, kindness does it for me. People who are kind and generous and give their time and look after other people. To me, running a tournament is about kindness, is about looking after people. This is something I think we do well at Canary Wharf. All the players know they will be looked after. The spectators know they will be looked after. And um, when I see other people doing that, I can see they're doing things the right way. I think we have a duty in in life in general to be kind and polite, honest, do the best we can. Good things will happen from that basis. I would uh, definitely share that, uh, echo that. And um, I think definitely the way that when I've run my events, it's kind of like you're creating a home 
and you want to treat everyone mm. as such and, and welcome them and, and make sure they have a great time. So, and I do think those, it, it's kind of like those intangibles. And I know I felt it sometimes when you go into a small restaurant and you can really just tell that everyone's on the same page and just that level of service and quality of food is there. Yeah, you know, I think it is that sharing that kindness and that gratitude. I'll let you um, into a little secret. When I do my MCing, I might have some, say, Rami Ashur playing a qualifier. I will make sure that both players have an introduction that is exactly the same length of time. Mm. I don't believe in bigging up one player and ignoring the other. I try and make sure this is a professional tournament. It has to be done properly and you give both players equal airtime. doesn't matter if the kid's a qualifier. You treat them like a pro. Yeah, absolutely. Um, your favorite movie or documentary? Oh, oh. Do you know, I'm watching a TV series at the moment called Wild Island. It's fascinating. It's about the west coast of Ireland. I'm assuming with your surname and your first name that you have some Irish antecedents. And this is a fascinating TV series about the wild waters of the west coast of Ireland where the Atlantic rolls in and smashes against the rocks. The wildlife in the sea is phenomenal. The dolphins, the whales, the sharks. I never knew that the west coast of Ireland was so amazing. So I'm booking a trip sometime soon. Oh, wow. Uh, what was the name of it again? It's Wild Island. Wild it's on Island. the BBC. And it's on the BBC? All right. Well, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Brilliant. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, my father was actually born in Ireland and raised in the west of Ireland, so uh, from County Mayo. Oh, perfect. Uh, perfect. Yes. And uh, I've had I've had the, the pleasure and the, the privilege to go over there a few times, and it really is breathtaking. So definitely we can talk lovely later about country. Some... Lovely yeah. country and lovely people. <laughs> uh, well, we can talk offline and uh, give you some recommendations. Um, right. <laughs> uh, next question. Uh, what is something, and it can either be an activity or something physical, um, that gives you disproportionate amount of happiness? Ooh. Um, the timing of this question is perfect because 22 years ago, I was nearly killed in a head-on car crash. Um, the seatbelt saved my life but it spun, it locked one shoulder in place, spun my spine around. Uh, my rib cage was pretty much crushed around the sternum. So I've had a few issues down the years, but um, certainly with my back. I've played at many clubs. I've moved around the country with my job. And when I moved to Maidstone in Kent, where I live now, I found a club bad enough for me to be the number one at. And that's the lovely Moat Squash Club at the Moat Cricket Ground. Um, thanks to my two osteopaths, a lady called Zara and a good mate called Nick Griffith, they've A, ended the pain and B, got given me a lot more movement than I had before. So actually being yeah. pain free for the first time in many, many years has basically given me my life back. I am loving being back on court, coaching, playing, and especially some long, hard racquetball matches. I'm, I've got a new lease of life. At the age of 63, I'm officially announcing I'm making a comeback. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, what was the treatment they were providing then? Well, first of all, Zara, a lady called Zara Van Herbert. She is one of the best osteopaths in the country. Where I live in Maidstone, we have two colleges of osteopathy. Um, so we're churning out loads of students who go on to be very good osteopaths, one of whom is, is a guy called Nick Griffith, who mm-hmm. is learning some new techniques, certainly about extending your range of movement and the pain that goes with it. I've endured all that, but the, the results are amazing. I go down to see him. He's in a beautiful little town called Rye, R-Y-E, on the south coast on the Kent-Sussex border. I'll happily drive 40 miles for an appointment because this guy is a genius. And, what what uh, um, I, I'm not as familiar with uh, what, what you're saying with osteopath. What is that exactly? Well, basically, you'll you'll be more familiar with a chiropractor, and a chiropractor okay. will give you a say. A, I don't want to diss what they do, but basically, a chiropractor will correct a problem, whereas an osteopath will work the whole body. Mm-hmm. So, uh, an osteopath will have a more holistic approach. Um, you know, the government recognizes osteopathy, the quality of the service. Uh, A few years ago, the osteopathic bill went through Parliament, and now an osteopath can actually sign you off work is a measure of the respect in which osteopathy is held in the UK, and rightly so. It is an amazing treatment. Would it be kind of um, 
massage or is it? It's uh, both. Like- uh, deep tissue massage combined with manipulation. You get some uh, some crunches and some clicks on your spine and your neck. Uh, some amazing manipulations and a much cheaper alternative to recreational gr- uh, drugs. I would happily recommend cranial osteopathy. You will walk out of that room feeling 10 feet tall. And I wish I could bottle that feeling and take it on a squash court with me. It is absolutely amazing. Well, I went to go see a, a specialist recently uh, that was called uh, the group's name was Aristotle. And it's what they did with soft tissue manipulation and complete. And I've tried everything chiropractor because I had pain, chronic pain in all sorts of part of my body. But it was, it was, I walked in with my, my thigh feeling a certain way. Like I could barely like shooting pain down to my heel, could barely walk. I walked out of there in two treatments where suddenly that part of my body was the best feeling and the rest of it we identified. I was like, the rest of it going on. So I completely agree. I think um, in general, there's so many different ways um, to, to kind of repair your body. And you really do, uh, the, the more you can start in early age, the better, but uh, it sounds like it can still fix a lot. Well, I'll, things, happi- so. I'll happily share another, another little bit of inside information. Um, all it? those years of inactivity, I spent more time watching squash than playing squash. Um, there's no greater fun than playing a hard game of squash and then having a beer with your opponent afterwards. I found a lot of time I was going to the club, I was watching the squash, I was having the beer, but I wasn't burning any calories. So over the years, I put on a few pounds, which I'm now, now I'm fit enough to actually do the work to get rid of all that excess weight. So since Christmas, I've shed 20 pounds and I want to shed another 20, really get back to my old playing weight. And uh, one thing I've been doing recently, every morning I'm making a smoothie with three apples and a big chunk of fresh raw ginger in the blender with some manuka honey. I had a very sore knee, but thanks to the lunging, the big lunging we do in squash and racquetball, my right knee was incredibly painful. Three weeks of ginger and the pain disappeared. Ancient Chinese remedy. Let's share that with every squash player on the planet. Uh, absolutely. That that also dramatically resonates with me where, you know, sugar is such an inflammatory and I cut out sugar in my diet and suddenly uh-huh. all those well, pains. Done. Yeah. You know, having yeah. an anti-inflammatory diet, mm. I was astonished at uh, how better my body was feeling. Um, so I, I think you actually answered, uh, was there anything recently that uh knew that you're trying it sounds like that's amazing losing 20 pounds and a gold <laughs> well, uh, well there's another there's another addition turmeric which is one of the main constituents of curry um mm-hmm. it, a lot of the soccer coaches here like pep guardiola at manchester city he is making sure that all his players have turmeric in their diet high levels of turmeric um, it reduces uh, pain and inflammation after playing and training another great tip for squash players so what I'm doing now, like little roast potatoes, um, just roll them in some turmeric and black pepper. That with the ginger works amazingly well as pain control. And I find that the ginger is an appetite suppressant as well. So those smoothies are keeping me going. Actually, they kept me going all through Canary Wharf. I didn't need a meal outside of those smoothies for the first three days at Canary Wharf. Well, I'm definitely going to try those. So. Happy to recommend those. Uh, next question is, uh, and there's only two more. What is one of the most inspiring talks that you've heard, uh, whether it's on so- something you could easily share? So whether it's on YouTube or uh, somewhere on the website, what, what would you recommend? Oh, ah, that's a tough one. This morning, yeah, I'm just trying to think. Actually, I'm writing one my own of my own, and it's all to do with Jahangir Khan and this the work that Jahangir did. Um, a friend of mine, Stuart Sharp, spent a lot of time with Jahangir. And if you go on YouTube, you'll see a lot of videos that Stuart has dug up from 30, 40 years ago, and he's uh, re-editing them. You imagine the change in technology from 30 years ago to now. So he's getting all this old video footage, and he's re-editing a lot of the stuff from Jahangir's heyday. You will not believe that the Pakistan, the Pakistan Air Force sent three fighter jets as a background to Jahangir sprinting along a runway. Oh, wow. This is the power that this man had. He had that nation enthralled to him. 
because of his power, his success. Pakistan is a new nation. After separation from India, the Khan family basically provided 30, 40 years of untold glory for this new nation. So for that family, some amazing things happened. And the film, Stuart Sharp was this hobo who used to wander into Wembley Squash Club. He was unemployed, split from his wife, sleeping in a car. He wandered into Wembley Squash uh, Centre to get out the rain, ended up talking to Ramat and Jahangir, ended up filming them, spent a lot of time with them. Stuart is an amazing character. He absorbed a lot of this knowledge, became an amazing squash coach, and then in his 50s set about writing music and started writing symphonies, which were recorded with full professional orchestras. And I can tell you that there is a new movie currently in production in Hollywood called The Gift. And it's all about this guy, Stuart Sharp. So that's something to look out for. And again, this is a guy who, a homeless hobo, turned his life around through squash and went off in some amazing directions. And I'm really proud to call him a good friend. And he and I have spent a lot of time together recently talking about Jahangir and Ramat. Uh, Stuart is very keen to make sure that Ramat gets all the recognition he deserves for guiding Jahangir through that time. And and Ramat is now based in San Francisco, by the way. And um, so I would suggest that for a future guest, Ramat would be a great guy to talk to. <laughs> Lots of stories. So I, hope sure, I hope in a roundabout way that answered the question. No, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's either something you're passionate about and you want to share and a hundred percent. Yeah. But so this, there's a little fall on to that question. Are you familiar with Ted talks? No. Say it again. No. Ted talks. Ted talks. Yeah. So what is that? Uh, so it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's basically, it's sharing great subjects and inspiring people through uh, short speeches. So they're anywhere between 12 minutes long to 20 minutes long. And the theory is changing the world by sharing inspiring thoughts. And uh, so if you haven't had a chance, I would recommend uh, YouTubing it. But basically, so the challenge, and uh, this is what your challenge would be, is you have to give a 15 minute to 20 minute talk about a subject that you're not known for. So you'd have to go explore Ah. something new and then share that. Yeah. So what would you want to uh, explore and share with the world? Okay, this is something you, not many people know. Uh, a friend of mine, he and I work together. We're building up a sports club to help homeless, disadvantaged young people get their lives together through sport. And I will happily stand up in front of any local council or sports funding body or police authority and tell them that by investing in sport, helping disadvantaged young people get their lives together through sport, you will uh, lower the crime rate, lower the drugs offense rate. You will produce a happier, healthier community uh, with sport at the heart of it. Well, it's a a great great message to share and uh, applaud you for for pursuing that. That's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, last question uh, no, no, no. Go on. is um, if you could recommend any book, be it fiction or nonfiction, what would you recommend and why? Well, I will have to recommend that everyone goes out and buys Jahangir Khan 555 because I need the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to let you off the hook with that because that's <laughs> just assume that's a given. Everyone's going to do that. Right. Okay. So w- w- what is something that you enjoy and uh, inspired you or had left an impression on you? Um, let me uh, come back to you on that one. I, I love reading sports books. I love biographies. I love reading stories about people who've helped others, who can mm-hmm. put their skills and experience towards helping others. So I'll get back to you on that one. I've read a few. So, but you in general would lean more towards a nonfiction then? Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of John Grisham. I love his stuff. And in about 15 months time when I retire, I've got six books in my head that I'm planning to write. Um, they're, so, they're sort of crime novels, but instead of having a, um, a cop as the hero, I'm having a journalist as the hero who solves all the crimes. His brother's a police officer. Um, but that will be coming out in the next two years. So that's another like project it. I'm working on. 
I'm it sounds busy. like you're, you're and it sounds like you're a novelist at heart because you're leaving us with some cliffhangers. Uh, so I appreciate that. Well, that's I think all the questions I have for today, uh, mind you. And like I said, I'd love to, to have you back on again. And just want to thank Thanks, you for your Connor. time. And been, that's a real great. pleasure. And, and we push through uh, the, the technology. On one one note, there will be a T-shirt coming out in the next two weeks. It's a new squash T-shirt. I'm not going to give away too many secrets right now, but it will be a new Squash Mad t-shirt. And I hope that everybody who plays squash on the planet will want to buy one because the message on this t-shirt absolutely sums up what the game is all about. And the money from the t-shirt will go towards the PSA Kent Open, which I run at the moat in June. Great. Well, we'll certainly uh, help get the word out. And Thanks, again, thank, thank you. I'll make sure you thank get one. What are you, what are you a medium? <laughs> <laughs> any more uh, any more of that outback and you might get extra large like me I, I know G- give me a few more weeks and uh, we'll see but uh, <laughs> yeah, really appreciate your time and you know pushing through the technology thanks, hurdles we have to, to get through to get online but look forward to staying in touch and thanks for all your, your hard work for the sport I, I've loved it I really enjoyed it thank you Connor Thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport, well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun. Mm-hmm.